Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We're happy to start the program off today with a conversation with Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin. We want to talk about the Dairy Pride Act that she is once again helping to sponsor. Senator, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. I know that the the Dairy Pride Act is something you've tried before and now uh, uh, working to get passed again. Uh, Tell us a little bit about it, what it would do. Well, I introduced the Dairy Pride Act to really take a stand for Wisconsin dairy farmers and the quality products that they make. So dairy farmers in Wisconsin work hard every day to make sure that their milk meets the high standards for nutritional value and quality that is uh, in federal law. But we have seen an explosion of imitation products that have gotten away with using dairy's good name for their own benefit, which is actually against the law, and that law must be enforced. So the Dairy Pride Act um, uh, pushes the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to actually enforce the law um, because mislabeling of plant-based products as milk really does hurt our dairy farmers, and um, their, uh, their hard work should be recognized and the law should be enforced. The National Milk Producers Federation is strongly supporting the Dairy Pride Act, and we should note that it has bipartisan support in both the Senate and the House, doesn't it? It sure does, and I have been pleased to join with Senator Risch in the um, United States Senate in reintroducing the Dairy Pride Act. So um, it is uh, something that I think uh, people who represent dairy farmers really understand the importance of seeing our federal standards for dairy enforced. Senator, specifically, what would this um, require or urge FDA to do on this issue? Well, the Food and Drug Administration oversees the part of federal law that defines what milk is and what uh, nutritional value and quality it has to have. And so when you have imitation products using the labels milk or uh, other dairy labels like yogurt or cheese or ice cream um, that causes confusion. And, you know, right now uh, dairy farmers across America are sort of in a perfect storm of uh, unfavorable conditions, whether that's the low price that they're getting for their milk or uh, issues of oversupply and trade wars uh, that have included retaliatory tariffs by Um, our allies on products like cheese, um, this uh, wouldn't solve the problems that dairy farmers are facing because there's so many, but it would certainly be a step in the right direction. Um, And in Wisconsin, we've seen in the last two years alone, 1,200 small and medium-sized family farms go out of business. So this is something um, that we feel is really urgent. We're talking with Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin about the Dairy Pride Act. Um, We know that there have been some 
comments made by outgoing FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb about uh, finally doing something about this issue. But will the change at FDA uh, as a top spot, do you think, uh, what, are, what are you hearing? Will that uh, slow the, their, uh, their attempts or their process down to actually follow the law? Or do you think they're going to move forward on this? You know, the Dairy Pride Act, as, as we note, is uh, aimed at getting the FDA to do its job. Um, the FDA has responded by saying, you know, we haven't enforced this for so long. We need to get a little bit more information before we fully start uh, enforcing it. And that process is well underway. Um, and uh, so we'd like to see um, their enforcement guidance uh, come out promptly. And I don't want to see any disruptions when there's a change in leadership in that organization. Um, we all, always have the Dairy Pride Act ready to uh, pass if, if they don't take swift action at FDA. I was going to ask, while we're talking about timelines, what is the timeline in Congress for a vote on the Dairy Pride Act? You know, I think it will in part rely on the answers we get uh, and I get today, uh, because if there is a, a sense that uh, they're slow walking this or that there won't be any relief, uh, in the near term, um, I think we may want to uh, swift. Uh, we we may want swift consideration and passage of the Dairy Pride Act. Um, if we hear that uh, enforcement of current law is imminent, uh, maybe we can uh, see how the FDA does on its own. Do you think there's enough? Do you have enough votes to pass it? Do you think if you if it comes to that? You know, I think we do, especially uh, uh, with some evidence in the Senate. It happened that last year uh, there were two uh, votes on the Senate floor related to this topic. And uh, while uh, it, it was presented in the negative form, in, in other words, one of my colleagues wanted to stop FDA from looking further into this, that was resoundingly rejected. Well, as you mentioned, these are tough times for dairy producers. Your, your state of Wisconsin has been especially hard hit, hasn't it? It has. Um, you know, the 1,200 dairy farms lost in 2017 and 2018, primarily small and medium-sized family farms, represents nearly 15% of all of our dairy farms over that two-year period. That is um, just a, a horrendous um, uh, you know, set of events that have led to this circumstance. And it's why, you know, we're not just relying on the Dairy Pride Act. Uh, when the Farm Bill was under consideration last year, um, I took the concerns I was hearing when I was visiting with dairy farmers back home to that uh, Agriculture Committee, and we had several things included in the 2018 Farm Bill that, uh, when fully implemented, should uh, create some additional relief. For example, we have a new and improved dairy margin coverage program, uh, basically an insurance program that will work better for farmers because they will get better coverage at a lower cost. Um, the sad uh, uh, aspect of this is because of the 35-day government closure, which was a partial government closure in the Act Department, the delay in the implementation of this new program, but we hope it's up and running very soon. Um, and in addition, uh, one of the things that I've been uh, pushing for is 
uh, Dairy Business Innovation Act, and especially aimed at uh, smaller businesses and, and dairy co-ops um, and new entrepreneurs to add uh, and, and launch value-added dairy products, um, help uh, helping dairy plants update their processes and uh, uh, help expand markets here at home and through exports for our struggling dairy farmers. All right. We thank you very much, Senator, for being with us. Uh, we'll be watching what happens at FDA and uh, with the Dairy Pride Act, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin joining us today here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk trade. Joining us now is Nick Giordano. Vice President and Council, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, some, uh, what, let's start with some good news. Uh, the announcement with uh, Brazil looks like that will open that market up to U.S. pork. How significant is that announcement? Um, well, look, we'll, um, we'll, we'll take it. It's, it's a positive thing, but um, I think as most producers understand we don't have a lot of potential in Brazil. Brazil is a big pork-producing nation. Um, our position simply going back quite a few years has been we need reciprocity. The Brazilians can export pork to the U.S. We should be able to export pork to Brazil. And, and in fact, there's um, we gave this administration early on a list of about 50 nations where we either have uh, no market access or uh, only partial market access. Brazil was on that list. So this is positive, but, you know, in terms of the headwinds that we face on trade and, you know, where the industry's been the past couple of years, but we appreciate it. We appreciate the Trump administration um, working hard uh, for us on this, the Bolsonaro administration in Brazil. Um, so it's, it's you know, on, on balance, it's positive we'll take it let's turn now to china the president has made it clear all along that he likes to use tariffs and now he's saying that even if a deal is struck with china tariffs could stay in place uh, for some time after the deal is announced your thoughts on that well that's going to be a real problem for us we need to get out from under these punitive tariffs we've got a, a we're pretty darn efficient and i think most of the ag economists will tell you Usually, often, with the United States is a low-cost producer in the world, and in fact, going back, you know, 10, 15 years, we often are the number one exporter in the world. We're really good, but we can't go into battle with one hand tied behind our back. We're on two Chinese retaliation lists, two, the metals list and the 301 uh, intellectual property forced technology transfer list. Now, you know, we understand there are... Important issues at stake here, but, um, you know, we, we, we've been, uh, our exports have been under siege because of these tariffs since April. So we got to get out from under these things, and there's opportunity in China because of African swine fever. 
and uh, that's that can be very positive for our producers. But um, we know that if we don't get out from under these fifty percent punitive tariffs, most of that benefit will go to competitors, not to the United States. Now, there's obviously if you take a significant chunk of Chinese production off the market because of ASF, it's going to have upward pressure on global on, on global um, hog and pork prices, right? So that's a good thing for our guys. But if we can't ship there, it's going to be indirect benefits backfilling in other uh, parts of the, the world. So not the same impact, not the same price impact for us if we get direct access. So, yeah, you can probably... I'm getting a little agitated here, Mike. This has been going on for a long time. We get it, and our guys have been patient. They realize there are you know, real big issues at stake here between the U.S. and China, but it's really tough when you're, you know, you're the innocent bystander that's getting whacked while this is going on. Nick, the question I keep coming back to, whenever we do get a trade deal, whenever, if and when that happens, Will we ever make up for what we've lost in the meantime? Look, China is the uh, look. It's it's probably the, the number one opportunity long term in the world. So I, 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 you know, I I think in 2017 we did about a, you know over a billion dollars. But when you look at all imports from all sources, U.S. and other suppliers, I don't even think that was 10 percent of total Chinese demand. So, look, long term, um, we got to get back into the, the China market. We're, we're going to sell a lot of pork. If that happens, we'll sell a lot of pork there long term. You know, short term, this is a huge problem. Now, you know, China, though, isn't our, our only problem. We actually have two bigger problems right now, which are the Mexican metal tariffs. We've got a 20% punitive tariff on Mexico, which is really our number one hair on fire issue. And uh, we're losing sales already in Japan because Japan is in the CPTPP. So the Canadians and the Mexicans and other competitors have favorable market access that we do not have. And then the European Union um, sealed a deal that's been implemented with Japan. So we're losing sales in, uh, in, in, in Japan. It's a huge problem for us. We can't get the U.S and Japan to move fast enough in their trade negotiations. I mean, this is a big deal for the pork industry. And I know talking to my colleagues in the beef industry and other sectors of agriculture to get this moving because, you know, China's in the news right now, but I'll tell you, we're getting killed in Mexico. It's a huge problem. We got to get those metal tariffs off and we're, we're losing sales already in Japan. We're at a disadvantage. It's, we got some real challenges here. We're talking with Nick Giordano, Vice President and Council, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. On Japan, uh, we're, we're hearing that the administration's uh, eager to get started on talks with Japan and get something worked out on a trade deal. What are you hearing? Yeah, we're hearing that. I mean, Ambassador Lighthizer, Ambassador Dowd have, have told us that directly. I mean, we talked to them uh, and, and to you know, the the. Uh, Undersecretary McKinney and USDA, USDR all the time. So they're committed. Um, it's just, you know, unfortunate that we had to shut down. So that, you know, pushed things out in time. 
And, um, we, you know, as I said, we can't get the negotiations started and finished fast enough because we're already losing sales in Japan. This is really tough. Japan has, year in and year out, been our top value market. I mean, it's really important to the pork industry. And we're, we're really concerned. So appreciate that the administration is committed to moving quickly. And, and you know, the Japanese have said that they are. That's, that's great, but we got to, you know, as an industry, we're going to keep, we're going to, you know, be pestering um, these governments to move quickly because we got a lot of trade at stake here in, in Japan. Nick, quick, and finally on USMCA, can that get through Congress without these tariffs being lifted? I don't know. I mean, members of Congress want the tariffs gone. So, you know, that's, that's important, irrespective of the pain being inflicted on pork producers because of the 20% punitive tariff that Mexico's put in place in response to the U.S. steel and aluminum tariffs. I mean, you know, that's a congressional matter. So, I, yeah, I, from, from my perspective, and look, we're, we are lobbying on USMCA. I mean, we, we are key voting that which means it's a signal to members of Congress that we're disproportionately going to be looking at this vote. Um, so we're not making the perfect the enemy of the good in terms of, well, you know, we're not going to withhold, we're going to withhold our support on USMCA until we get the metal tariffs. No, because that 20% punitive tariff we're facing, if North American free trade were to go away, so if Congress wasn't, you know, doesn't move on USMCA and the president resurrects his threat, to uh, terminate the NAFTA, we have no free trade. That 20% tariff becomes, that's what's called Mexico's MFN rate. That, that's the rate that we would face all the time, and we'll lose that. We will totally lose that market over time. So we're all in on USMCA. Um, the metal tariffs obviously are a big issue, but I, I think my, my great hope is that that the metal tariff issue gets resolved, and I think that um, we can get USMCA through the Congress. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's possible that before the August recess, the agreement's done. The president's going to be talking shortly to um, members, of, uh, Republican members of Congress. He's personally engaged. Ambassador Lighthizer's been meeting with everybody, met with the Democratic caucus. They're, they're working hard. And, I, look, it's not going to be easy, but I think it can be done. It's a crossroads year on these very important issues, that's for sure. Nick, thank you for the update. Thank you for having me. Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Some huge trade issues that have been going on for some time now. Hopefully will be resolved this year, but uh, we continue to wait. Meanwhile... Farm bankruptcies have hit highs that have uh, not been seen for many years in some states. We're going to discuss that with the director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. Christine Tidgren joins us next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn.
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, you've probably seen or heard the headlines. Chapter 12, farm bankruptcies have hit highs that have uh, not been seen for many years in some states. And that has caused uh, comparisons to be raised and questions to be asked. Are we headed into a similar situation as we saw back in the 1980s with the ag economy? We're going to discuss that now with the director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University, Christine Tidgren, joins us. Christine, thank you for being with us. Yes, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, let's let's kind of get uh, into these uh, stories and kind of dig a little bit behind the headlines. Uh, are the headlines misleading? Obviously, it's a concern if we're seeing, uh, we know there, the ag economy is down and has, has been down for a few years now, and it looks like it's going to take a while to yet to come out of this. But uh, how uh, serious of situation overall, and we know every, every individual operation is different, but when we look at the overall picture of the ag economy here in 2019, uh, what is your assessment? What is the state of the ag economy right now? Well, and I'm not an economist, Mike. I'm on the back end with the with the law and dealing with people who are dealing with these issues. But it seems mm-hmm. like this is we're not in a situation where it's the 1980s at this point um, by any stretch. Um, there are some increases in certain pockets of the country, particularly the Midwest, where we are of increases in the Chapter 12 filings. But if you still look at the numbers, it's, you know, we still have relatively low number of farmers who are actually filing for bankruptcy. There are a number of farmers who are feeling the stress that perhaps they haven't felt um, before, and so that's difficult. It's leading them to change their operations. Um, But there are a lot of differences, I think, from the 1980s, and we don't want, um, you know, to have hype or or concern that, that things are falling apart because I really don't think we're at that point right now. And the headlines, of course, talk about bankruptcies. Uh, not, uh, I guess I don't want to say bankruptcies are good, but are, are there ways that certain types of bankruptcy filings could actually be a, a tool to, to help that operation through a tough time? Yes, and, and chap- the Chapter 12 bankruptcy is the chapter that was created during the 1980s crisis specifically for family farmers. And the good thing about Chapter 12, if you're eligible to file it, is it will allow you to um, restructure things, maybe downsize, get rid of some tax debt that you might have that might hamper you from being able to continue your farming operation if you have to sell assets. And if you can prove to the court that you have a feasible plan, a way to move forward and and pay your debts, perhaps after you've done some downsizing, then you can continue your farming operation and not have to liquidate. So it's a a really good tool, but it has some limitations. I think during this downturn, the biggest limitation that Chapter 12 has is the debt limit. So it's, like I said, it's designed for family farmers, but the debt limit hasn't really been adjusted since 2005. It's just been increased for inflation. And so right now, if your debt exceeds around $4.2 million, you're not eligible to take advantage of Chapter 12, 
which means if you want to continue farming, you'd have to file under Chapter 11, which is much more complex. That's really designed to uh, be for you know large corporations that we read about in the headlines that are going bankrupt. Um, it's not really designed to help a struggling farmer. So not all bankruptcy options are created equal here, right? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, when when a lot of people think of bankruptcy, they think about the liquidation, which just means basically you're going out of business, you're going to file a Chapter 7, you're going to sell all of your assets, and then whatever's left over is going to get distributed amongst the creditors, uh, you know, according to priority. But that's, you know, that's sort of the bankruptcy of last resort, because what that, that is, is it's the death knell to the farming operation. And so there are, you know, some farmers who have had to resort to Chapter 7, and one of the hard things about knowing exactly where we're at is that the statistics, we don't have any way to really see, you know, which Chapter 7s are farmers, which Chapter 7s are just regular non-farming businesses, um, which are individuals, et cetera. So it's kind of hard to know um, just right now where we are in terms of how many liquidation bankruptcies that, that we're seeing. Um, but that is sort of the last resort. Um, what I think one of the things we're seeing right now is farmers who are struggling are just sort of fading out of farming. And so they're sort of looking for ways not necessarily to declare bankruptcy. Hopefully they haven't gotten to that point. But they're just sort of looking for other other ways to make a living. Many of them have already had off-farm jobs. Now they're just sort of phasing out their farming operation, you know, realizing that they're maybe not able to make enough money to sustain it. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. You know, I think we're getting more people leaving, um, just continuing the trend that we've had. So the headlines can be a little bit deceiving, right? They don't always tell the whole story here. Right. I think that's true. I, I don't think, I mean, while we have, in, like I said, a certain states, and, and it's very state-specific because other states in the country, the Chapter 12 filing bankruptcies, are, the Chapter 12 bankruptcies are actually down. Um, but again, it, you know, in the Midwest, where we're reliant on, on the dairy industry, and um, we have had downturn in some of our wheat and corn and soybean markets and things, um, we are having a, an increase. Um, but I would say the increase is not significant in terms of, of the filings of Chapter 12. Yeah, you know, Christine, I don't think we're there yeah. quite yet. Right. We're talking with Christine Tidgren, Director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. So when it comes to Chapter 12, Christine, uh, when you have a situation where commodity prices are low as they are and interest rates are rising, like they are now, slowly, but they have been rising, uh, then Chapter 12 may not be a good option for uh, some people looking at it then. Right. So one of the things, if you're going to have a reorganization bankruptcy, which that's the type of bankruptcy where you're able to continue with your business, is you have to show the court that your plan is feasible, right? So with this type of bankruptcy, the goal is to be able to come up with a plan where you'll be able to sort of restructure um, your debt, maybe downsize, sell off some assets, but have enough cash flow to be able to pay off your secured creditors over three to five years. And so if you can't get to a situation where you can show that you're actually going to have cash flow to be able to 
make your payments under the plan and to be able to keep your business going, then that plan isn't going to be feasible and you're really not a candidate for a reorganization bankruptcy. Um, in that case, you're just more of a candidate if you have to declare bankruptcy for the liquidation, just getting out of the business altogether. Hey, as you mentioned, it's different in different parts of the country. Looking at some of the numbers, uh, as when it comes to Chapter 12 bankruptcies in 2018 compared to 2017, the Rocky Mountain area up 56%, the Midwest up 19%, the Northeast up 18%, the Southwest up 13%. Chapter 12 bankruptcies declined, declined by 40% in the Pacific region, 27% in the southeast so it kind of reflects uh, you know the the agriculture in different parts of the country doesn't it right I think so and if you look at what chapter 12 is really helpful for um, if you have too many assets and you need to downsize then chapter 12 will allow you to do that in a way where you don't have to pay all of those capital gains taxes that you would otherwise owe as um, um, the, the recapture which is actually uh, either capital gains on your on your sale of land or if you're selling you know depreciated equipment you would have to pay a lot of ordinary income taxes and that the chapter 12 gives you options to be able to put the IRS in the same position as any other on secured creditor and to be able to do that. Well, if your operation is such that you can actually sell off some assets, then you may be a candidate for Chapter 12. Other parts of the country, perhaps maybe they have different forms of operations where um, even the markets that they're facing, you know, they're not facing the same pressure. Um, but it's really those uh, folks that have um, assets they can sell to downsize that they're the best candidates. Um, if, if they are struggling and they own some land of their own, but they could sell off a small parcel, um, you don't need bankruptcy. You know, you can continue. The folks who seem to be doing the best right now are definitely the ones who own land. Um, and if they own it debt-free, that they're doing, they're doing well, be, you know, much better than their peers who, who don't own land or those who bought it, uh, you know, and still owe um, on credit. Um, because, you know, land prices, as you know, just because of the demand for land, they really haven't fallen, which is another thing that really separates this current downturn from the 1980s, because our, our you know, our land price is still strong, which, you know, another category of folks who are struggling more are those who are really dependent on cash running ground, right? Because the land prices are higher, the cash rents have maybe not come down quite as much as you might expect given the weaker markets. And so that's put a lot of financial pressure on those farmers who are dependent on renting their ground as opposed, as opposed to farming ground that they own. Yeah, so there are a lot to the numbers, and the, as we said, the headlines can be misleading, so we try to look uh, behind those headlines to get a little more depth and uh, perspective on this. Christine, thank you for being with us. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for talking with me, Mike. Bye. All right. Christine Tidgren, Director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. All right, coming up next, Mimi Falkman, a lubricants expert at CHS, next on AOA. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. 
With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Joining us now is Mimi Falkman, a lubricants expert at CHS. Mimi, thanks for joining us. In a, in a tough ag economy like it is right now, it's, it's important for farmers to find ways that uh, they can uh, cut costs and uh, you know extend the life of, uh, let's say, uh, equipment that they have. Uh, they're not in a position maybe to trade at the particular time, so they want to get all they can out of that equipment. Uh, this, is, this is important to look for ways to do that, isn't it? Yes. Very important. I mean, as you said, it's a difficult landscape out there, and honestly, it's been happening for almost three, or excuse me, six years now. Um, and with that, such a long trend, farmers just don't have the extra funds to purchase a new piece of equipment. I mean, those things are expensive, upwards of four hundred thousand um, dollars. So they really need to get the most out of what they have to keep their operation running. I think one of the easiest ways they can do this is by using a premium quality lubricant. Um, It makes sure that those key metal components are protected and that they're not scraping against each other, causing any unnecessary wear or even worse, um, like a catastrophic breakdown in the middle of planting. So using a good quality lubricant then is obviously important. How much can that make, how much of a difference can that make in in extending the life of a piece of equipment? It can be huge. I mean, your your lubricant is going through some of the toughest conditions. I mean, inside an engine specifically, it's obviously extremely hot, um, and equipment is operating in maybe not the cleanest of conditions. I mean, it's doing hard work out there in the field. There's dirt, there's moisture, um, so using a quality lubricant can help protect your engine from all of those elements. I mean, if you're using a lower quality diesel engine oil, for example, it's not going to be able to withstand um, that moisture and that dirt and that intense heat. It's eventually going to start breaking down. Um, but on the flip side, if you're using a high quality diesel engine oil, those are specifically manufactured and engineered to um, withstand those conditions and retain its viscosity throughout the entire drain interval. It may seem like a fuel decision is a short-term decision, but really what we're saying is it's a long-term decision, isn't it? Yeah, so it's actually a a lubricant decision, and it is definitely something that you will see in the long run. It's definitely there are a lot of options out there for what you can pick in terms of a lubricant product, but honestly, if farmers can just focus on that high-quality heavy-duty diesel engine oil, they'll be sure to get that excellent viscosity retention, that exceptional oxidation control, and um, if they're also looking for something that can control the contaminants, they'd be looking for a high total base number as well to give them the protection they need. So I, I guess maybe the, the first thing someone would look at would be price, but you have to look beyond price at all these other factors, right? You definitely do. Um, investing in a high-quality lubricant ensures that you're not going to have to pay maybe those 
$70,000 bills down the road. I mean, if you're using a lower quality lubricant, there's a better chance that those um, key components are going to rub together, they're going to cause wear, they're going to break, um, and that can result in a big hefty bill at the end. Yeah, I think a lot of times when we think about uh, maintaining equipment, uh, we look at a lot of different factors, but the the choice of diesel maybe is not uh, at the top of that list, and it really needs to be. That's one of the key components of equipment maintenance. Yeah, definitely picking a high-quality lubricant, I would say. I mean, fuel is up there as well, and if you do pair fuel and a lubricant together, and they're both high-quality products, you're definitely going to see a better end result than if you were using a lower-quality lubricant. What are some other tips, Mimi, you can give uh, farmers to uh, keep that equipment uh, working uh, at uh, peak efficiency for a longer period of time? Sure. I would say finding those high-quality products, um, and investing in that equipment maintenance. I would also recommend that they check out um, our two synthetic products, so our Maxtron EnviroEdge and our synthetic blend Maxtron DEO. And both of these products ensure that that viscosity stays in place throughout the entire drain interval. Um, so keeping your, your equipment protected, even if, even if you want to, you know, get closer to the end of that drain interval um, before you change it, you can be confident that your engine is protected. You know, probably that some of those things are things that maybe get taken for granted or we don't think is are that important because we don't always see an immediate impact, but we're talking more of that long-term again, so people need to keep that in mind that those decisions now can pay big dividends later down the line. They do, and our products are engineered um, to make sure that they, they reach that end line, you know. Um, one of the key benefits that they offer is that we offer a new cutting-edge radiopolymer technology, which we call Endurovis, and essentially this new polymer is five times more shear-stable and holds that viscosity longer than many products on the market. So again, going back to it, farmers can get more out of their equipment for a longer period of time. So all lubricants not created equal, right? No, definitely not. <laughs> so these are important decisions uh, that really add up to a, to a farmer's bottom line. So that's why they have to be taken so seriously and, and, and more thought going into them. Part of the management of uh, your equipment on the, on the farm. Yes, exactly. All right, Mimi, thank you very much. Uh, good tips, good information for folks to keep in mind. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Mike. Mimi Falkman, a lubricants expert at CHS. Well, that does it for today. Thank you for joining us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone.